Red flags, but okay podcast beginning in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, Jen. Hey, Kate. <laughs> the, I, hate, I hate this. This is a weird flex, but okay. The podcast where we tell you stuff and you choose whether or not you want to listen because you're an autonomous human being and you can do whatever you want. This is take three of what episode, Jen? Barefoot and Pregante. Pregante. Barefoot and pregnant. And uh, we already recorded a whole bunch of it. And it's <laughs> <recorded>, so. <laughs> so this is take two. We don't sound shocked by the notes. Now, or act, this is, uh, yeah, take two recording into the notes. Like take three recording just the intro. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's better than last time, but not by much. I hope I sound okay. So if I don't sound okay, you guys still pretend that I sound great. Um, we're trying our best. We're doing amazing. And Jen starts. We know that because she already started once. <laughs> Hit me, Jen. All right. So you know your girl has to start off with the most obvious topic to represent all her basic girls out there. Barefoot wine. Yes. And in case you're really confused and have no idea what I'm talking about, Here's what I want you to do. You're going to pause this episode. Don't do that. You're going to go to the nearest grocery store. Take us with you. And you're going to walk down the wine aisle. Yes, do that. <laughs> you can't miss it. It'll be there. Now that you're back, we're going to move on to the topic. Barefoot Wine is one of the largest wine brands in the world and is known for its label with a footprint on it. It's easy to identify anywhere you go. And it was started first in a garage and then in a laundry room. Like all great wines, obviously. <laughs> Davis Bynum began making barefoot Bynum Burgundy wine out of his garage in 1965. Before he eventually sold it to Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey. They lived in Sonoma County, and so like most people who live in an area branded as wine country, they decided to dedicate their lives to winemaking, and they rebranded it as Barefoot Sellers. Thanks to their work with nonprofits, where they donated bottles of their wine to different nonprofit organizations for their larger events, their name got out there, and by 1986, it took off and became the brand we know and love today. The Harvey's did sell out in 2005 to E&J Gallo. So while Barefoot Sellers is no longer an individual wine company, um, they are now under the big umbrella of E&J Gallo wines. The man. They sold out to the man. They sold out to the man. But they're still probably billionaires. Of course. I, mean, I love it for them. <laughs> and another fun little tidbit about Barefoot Wine is they are dedicated to cork. Aren't we all? <laughs> minus like three types of their wines that are the crack lids they are determined to keep their wines corked i like that i like a corked wine better than a cracker yeah it is fun to say wine. nice crack though nice crack nice pap um that's a reference to wine and crime and if you don't listen to wine and crime you were really missing out that is such a great podcast mm -hmm. <laughs> i already told you this but i'm gonna tell you again i um so I'm doing pregnant and obviously I've been pregnant many times and I had to talk to my therapist about this episode 
quite a bit because I have a bunch of pregnancy and birth related trauma and I had to make sure that my notes didn't make me sad. So uh, hopefully they don't make anybody else sad. I've kept it pretty, pretty upbeat for the most part. I, it's not a, not a sad one. So I know that there's a lot of pregnancy related things that really upset people. And I tried to steer pretty far away from that. So Jennifer, when I say Chad, what do you think of? Frat boy. Frat boy. So Chad has become internet synonymous with a stereotypical young white alpha male type, but I'm going to tell you a very different Chad story. The 2000 election was a tight one. Nepotism Barbie, George W. Bush, and real-life Batman villain Dick Cheney were running against human punchline Al Gore and the extremely forgettable Joseph Lieberman. (laughs) Now, very strictly speaking, Al Gore won the popular vote by just over half a million votes. In fact, a Republican has only won the popular vote once in 33 years. That's you know, just half a, a half a million doesn't feel like a lot. I know it's a huge number. Yeah, like in the grand in the scheme grand of scheme of things, things that is extremely. This was like, the tightest race that's ever really happened. Close. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to cut this out because I don't like talking about Trump. But I mean, Trump lost by 10 million votes in the last exactly. election, that's and they made that giant stink about it. So it's a testament to how dumb Trumpies are that they mm-hmm. went nuts over a loss like that when this was actually a fairly controlled yeah. thing that was actually like, like I'll get into it. cities that are like yeah. bigger than that. Yeah, but like this – and this was so close that Florida – the difference of votes in Florida was 537. That's crazy. Yeah, but that's what I'm going to get into. Okay. Okay. That's just a silly little trivia fact for everyone about um, how how the Republicans – really, really don't want us to get rid of the Electoral College. But I digress. Votes were cast back then on actual paper ballots for the most part and then counted by computers. Some ballots were cast by filling in the bubbles next to the candidates, like with a pencil or pen, but others were done by punching in the bubble. That's how we got to Chad. A Chad is a little bit of paper punched out when you punch a hole. So you have a hole puncher, you punch it, you empty out the hole puncher. All those little things are called chads, which is really cute. They're just little chads. <laughs> that so, is really cute. I know. It's adorable. So exit polls in Florida during this election showed overwhelmingly that Gore had won. It was a surprise to absolutely everyone when the computer count showed the opposite. Naturally, a recount was called in Florida. The state's 25 electoral votes would have absolutely turned the tide of the election, and whoever Florida went with at that point was going to be the winner. It was suspected, and spoiler alert, true, that the computer was having trouble reading the ballots with chads that were still partially attached. There was a very large number of what is called undervotes, and these are ballots where, according to the computer, the person voting did not complete the ballot. So let's say they they did all their senators and all their extra little ballot things on there, but then they didn't fill in president or they didn't fill in like one of those things. Those are called undervotes. Under Florida law, Gore was well within his rights to have those ballots hand recounted. Florida Secretary of State and, coincidentally, co-chair of George Bush's Florida campaign rejected the requested recount. 
It was then taken to the Florida Supreme Court because, like I said, it was well within the laws of Florida to have those votes recounted. They ruled that a recount could be conducted, and they set a timeline to do it, and that was in December. It didn't end there, though. It then went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where they halted the recount by stating that it would do, quote, irreparable harm to George Bush. (laughs) Justice Scalia claimed that a recount would undermine Bush's presidency, so they shouldn't bother doing it. Dissenting opinions predictably said that that's dumb. If a recount could show that Bush outright won, then it would only make his presidency stronger. So why not do the recount? I'm inclined to completely agree with that. It just simply doesn't make sense. Regardless, on December 13th, 2000, Al Gore conceded to George W. Bush. It's kind of insane to look at the world we live in now and imagine how different it would be if it had gone the other way. What would the world be like if Dick Cheney hadn't gleefully launched us into a forever war in the Middle East? What would our future look like if a climate activist like Al Gore had been president? It's impossible to know. One thing that we do absolutely know for sure, and tons of political scholars have talked about, is that the results of the 2000 election changed the public opinion of how fair our elections are forever. People straight up stopped believing that votes count. And that's a pretty big deal. But what on earth does this have to do with pregnancy? Well, there were four distinct types of partially attached chads that the computers couldn't definitively read. Hanging chads, swinging chads, tri-chads, and last but not least, of course, pregnant chads. And those (laughs) were the ones that were indented a great deal but did not fully puncture through. That was an M. Night Shyamalan twist right there. Shyamalan twist, of course. The the old (laughs) pregnant chad twist. I knew about hanging chad. Mm-hmm. But I did not know about it. I did not know there was a pregnant Chad. Yeah, there was lots of Chads going on. I remember um, I was still very young, obviously, but I remember seeing like pictures and stuff of like pregnant people during Halloween the next year because oh. it was such a huge deal and they would just have a t-shirt on that said Chad. That's clever. Yeah. Are you ready to hear my dream job, your dream job? A lot of people's dream job. Yes. This is a job posting for the barefoot bookseller in the Maldives. Oh, go on. I'm already getting my resume ready. <laughs> the five-star resort, Suneva Fushi, opened up the first pop-up bookshop in 2018. The goal was to reflect the natural environment and luxury mm. of the resort. Luxury. And the role of the Barefoot Bookseller is to provide guests with unforgettable literary experiences through a writer's workshop, personal reading consultations, and more. If this job position position interests you, then congrats, they are currently hiring for the position. Word? (laughs) Yeah. Here's what they are looking for. Okay. You must be a team player with a passion for books. Me. And the ability to engage with guests of all ages. Me. Excellent written and verbal English skills. Well, you guys be the judge, but me, probably. (laughs) A lively tone of voice to write an entertaining blog that captures the exhilarating life of a desert island bookseller. All right, I feel judged. (laughs) 
and the skills to host workshops and other guest experiences. Okay, I can do that. You also must have the ability to fit in with the distinctive Suneva culture. They do not elaborate on what that means. (laughs) I feel like I might be able to. Are they aloof? Because I I could do that. Should you be selected, you will fly out to the Maldives in October of this year for a 12-month contract. Okay, I'm ready. Get the babysitter ready. (laughs) It says nothing about pay, room and board, benefits, vacation time, hours. None of that's on the job description. (laughs) Could you imagine living the life of just like a single hottie who can just take jobs like this? Like it doesn't matter. You're just a single hottie with a trust fund and you can just go wherever. So if you want to apply, it tells you where you can send your resume if you're interested. So um, barefootbookseller.com. And if you get it, I want to know. Yeah, let Uh, us know, You can also go see the past three barefoot booksellers, like blog posts and stuff on that site as well. Spoiler alert, they hunt them like most dangerous game. That's how it ends. (laughs) That's how you get fired. It does slightly sound like it's a murder. It does, like, yeah. Just like if you are a person who can disappear and no one will care, please take this job. It's perfect for you, ladies. Which I was telling Joe about it. I was like, Joe, listen to this amazing job opportunity. And he's like, like, red flag, red flag. He was like, that sounds like you're going to get murdered. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I but in the Maldives, surrounded by books. So, like, <laughs> yeah, I'll take the death. Sure, hunt me. I'll just be reading and you can take me. <laughs> That sounds great. Yeah. I'm going to do a little vocab lesson and explain some pregnancy and gestation terms and timelines and reverse trigger warning here because I think that most people not understanding how pregnancy works is actually getting us as a society into a lot of trouble. (laughs) So the first term is gestational age. This is the first day of the last period. If we go by gestational age alone, I am currently eight days pregnant. So, you know, it's it's a construct. In reality, I could not be less pregnant right now if I tried. Mom, don't be worried. But that's kind of the importance of understanding the terms and science around something that we obsessively regulate. Our second term is fertilization age because everyone and every pregnancy is a little bit different. This could be between gestation age eight and 16 days, roughly. It's when the egg is actually fertilized and begins to cleave. Sidebar, cleavage is such an awful word. I really hate that word. (laughs) Our next word is implantation age. After fertilization, it takes a couple of days for the fertilized egg to implant into the wall of the uterus. Day one of implantation is typically around 20 days of gestation. When in all of this mix, do you know that you're pregnant? Well, a typical miss period isn't until week four of gestation because having a uterus is an unpredictable hell and most periods don't come completely on time. Your average person will be suspicious enough to take a pregnancy test between five and seven weeks of gestation. And now they're all the new owner of a fresh cluster of cells called an embryo. But I know what you're thinking, Jen. But Kate, 
just an embryo? I've seen billboards my whole life telling me that this is a fully functioning human being <laughs> called a fetus that is more important than I am. Wrong you again, Alito. Yeah, it's got a mind and eyes. The fetal stage does not begin until gestation age, 10 weeks, one day. So that is just a little bit of terminology. That's your vocabulary test. There will be a test at the end um, on a lot of things that are like thrown around right now in political circles, oddly enough, billboards in conservative areas. And I have noticed over time that they are almost always used wrong. Thank you for that. You're welcome for that. I'm going to continue with our nice little science ah, I love it. <laughs> lesson, but I cool. need to clear my throat first. Please do. Can you hear Walt meowing right now? No, I, had, I do have oh. you turned way down, though, so that you don't reverb through my headphones. He's doing his like loud meow out in the living room. Walt and Mo, could you imagine them having a face off? <laughs> we should Hilarious. hold them both up to the mics. <laughs> Just two fat boys <laughs> screaming at each other. <laughs> All right. Let's take a turn from drinking barefoot wine while barefoot in a bookstore in the Maldives. Great. <laughs> and instead, take a look into a recent research article on running barefoot. I used to run barefoot. You know, when I do half marathons, humble brag. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, me too. When I do all of them. There are points where I'm in the in the middle of the race and I'm like, I want nothing more to just rip my shoes off and run barefoot right now. But yeah. I don't. Usually because I'm running like in the middle of a city. and It would be you know, so unwise. <laughs> Um, so there is a hot debate in the world of running injury, well, specifically running injury on whether running shoes are better or worse for us than running barefoot. Interesting. A recent, uh, review article by Peter Francis from the Department of Science and Health Institute of Technology, Carlo, which is in Carlo, Ireland, and Grant Schofield from the Human Potential Center School of Sport and Recreation in Auckland University. Uh, it's Auckland University of Technology in Auckland, New Zealand. Great. Argue. Argues. Sorry. That was a really long sentence and I messed up all okay. my Do you want to do the sentence over or do you want me to just cut it up? It, this will work. Leave all of this in. I'm okay, human. Great. They argue that though there is not a causal link between modern footwear and injury while running, it may be beneficial to incorporate some barefoot training or minimalistic footwear training into your running plan. So how exactly does barefoot running benefit you? Well, the human body has an innate ability to moderate impact during dynamic activities such as walking and running. Biotins biotensegrity biotensegrity okay. which is when human tissue repels sudden deformation through tensioning and stiffening elements essentially moving your foot great is a key factor in this ability to um moderate impact let me find my sentence this is a long section guys that's okay i'm here for it <laughs> 
When you move your foot into the plantar flexion, so when you point your toes, or the dorsiflexion, if you, that's when you like dorsal flex, which bring your feet, your toes up, it creates a skin deformation sufficient enough to alter the skin thickness and hardness on the plantar and dorsal parts of your foot, so top and bottom of your foot. These alterations, even when non-weight-bearing, so if you're just sitting in your seat, flexing your pointing and flexing your your feet I do it all I'm the doing time it right now <laughs> it's, when you think about it it's like I bet all of you listening are doing it right now this can stimulate the cutaneous mechanoreceptors that play a key role in gait and postural stability so cutaneous is your skin another aspect of biotin biotin it's so hard I can't even <laughs> conceptualize the word <laughs> Biotinsegrity, another aspect of biotinsegrity is that it can be influenced by strain that has been previously experienced by the tissue, foot position, and muscle tendon architecture. So by positioning the foot and leg in a position where the muscular and connective tissue components have a mechanical advantage, you can create a more favorable limb position when it comes to absorbing contact with the ground. So you're essentially your, your muscles and the tissues in your skin can recognize something from um, a previous experience and can adjust innately. So just without you even thinking about it, they can adjust to be able to take that contact with the ground better. Another way the human foot has the innate ability to handle impact is through sensory feedback from the skin on your foot. Um, we have all probably seen that weird image that shows all the like your like hands and your feet like big based off of where um, like you're like most sensitive. Mm -hmm. And so your feet do have a lot of um, like sensory neurons. And um, let me find my spot again. It interacts with descending motor commands at the spinal cord, which allows reflexive modulation of motor neuron excitability, a.k.a. it makes your motor neurons work more as a reflex to the feedback from the skin on your foot. When you're wearing shoes, you're reducing that feedback, so that mm. can alter your body position, your muscle activity, and your limb movements during walking. And if you think even like socks, oh, socks can't be doing that much, right? If I'm walking around with socks on, even manipulating the sensory input on the top of your foot can alter your uh, joint movements during walking, specifically in your ankle and your knee. That's fascinating. Yeah. Runners who are habitually barefoot demonstrate lower force when compared with those running in shoes. So researchers argue that this is due to the optimization of the limb position for ground contact and the preactivation of muscles in, in anticipation of contact with the ground. So this was done on a study on runners in Kenya, both a group that run barefoot like regularly in a group that run with shoes and they found that the barefoot group their um 
muscles just like instinctively were ready to like absorb that impact on the ground naturally. Wow, that is incredible. (laughs) So if all of that was still a little confusing, I tried to like write it all out in as much of layman's terms as I could do. The researchers are arguing that the human foot has been evolutionarily designed to sustain impact from walking and running. And so by adding shoes with all these extra things like arch support and padding and cushioning, we've been counteracting that physiological response in our body. And that could potentially lead to more injuries when running. Again, there is no causal link right now. Research has not shown a causal link between running barefoot and injury or running in shoes and injury, but it may be beneficial to incorporate some barefoot running or minimalistic, which is just kind of like those like little toe shoes or like trail run in those. Yeah. Adding that into your training plans may be good to help delay injury to your legs and joints. That is really, really fascinating. I had an inkling about running barefoot or doing impact exercise barefoot because it's something that I've always done in some form. And I don't know how much of that is because I grew up just kind of barefoot a lot. Um, we, you know, I am from Mississippi. We're not real mm-hmm. shoesy people there. And I've always preferred to be barefoot. I don't like, I'm never one of those people that like, if I'm go- like going to pop outside or something, I slip shoes on. No, I'm just going to go walk out to my car, walk, go play with the kids in the backyard barefoot. Um, and I also lift weights barefoot unless I'm in a gym because then it's weird. Um, <laughs> but the part about your biofeedback mm-hmm. being linked to actual bare skin on your feet I it's had no idea. So cool, right? That is Don't so worry. Fascinating. I would have never guessed that. You can read the whole study. I will. Because <laughs> you'll get the title and everything when we citation. And the, the whole study was, and I was like, I could go on forever. There was so much stuff that I did not include. That's incredible. Um, but there's also, and you'll love this, and we're going off on our nerdy science tangent. There's a lot of research studies about the benefits of allowing children to play barefoot. Like I do having, feel really strongly about that. Yeah, there's like um, studies where schools have had like a designated like barefoot like time period, okay. and they like look at like like uh, longitudinal studies into looking at how that like improves their like running abilities. Actually, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So I previously worked in childcare. And we had to keep the kids' shoes on. It was a whole thing where I w- there was a lot of times where I would be sitting in a teeny tiny chair begging a child to put their shoes back on. And I worked <laughs> at the front desk, guys. But um, I feel very strongly about children having tactile relationships to the world. And I recently sent you a study that has nothing to do with this podcast about kids <laughs> and screens and mm-hmm. how it's – children don't have the same hand development because they're interacting with screens and because they're not having the same tactile relationship to the world around them. And that's totally separate from how their brain's developing. It's just like a physical development. And I always feel like kids should be barefoot as much as possible. They should be naked as much as possible when appropriate. Like kids should have a (laughs) relationship to the world around them and they should feel it. And it's interesting in the context of running to hear that it is actually a biofeedback physical link. It's not just Mm -hmm. like 
feeling the world around you and how your brain is developing. It's like, it's a real thing. That's really cool. I'm actually so fascinated in that. Yeah. I, <laughs> when I was in college, I used to run on the treadmill barefoot and I have, I will say, I don't recommend this if you are not a thick soled person like yes. I am <laughs> because it will shred your feet. The treadmill, <laughs> it is basically sandpaper when you are barefoot <laughs> on it. But I used to run on the treadmill barefoot and my reasoning is because I'm bow backed and when I would wear shoes, it would incline me slightly and it would make oh, my bow back uh-huh. worse. And when I started running barefoot on the treadmill, it actually improved my posture. And I don't know what science that's based on, but it, for my own personal anecdote, it did actually improve my posture to run on the treadmill barefoot. because those mechanoreceptors directly yeah. relate to your gait and your posture. Yeah, whatever, whatever muscles d- were deciding to tense and release in that moment was probably it was totally actually based on the feelings in the soles of my feet, which I did not think. I thought it was just that my shoes were too high. <laughs> That's so cool. I used to wear the um, Vibram, extremely minimal Vibram, like toe shoes. And then I started wearing like Merrill ones to trail run because everyone made fun of my Vibram ones so much because of the toe shoes. And I had like four pairs of them. I loved them. But people roasted me so much for those that I got Merrill ones that were not the toe shoes, but they're extremely thin soled. Mm-hmm. And they just had a wider toe box so my feet could spread more. And I really loved those. And I wore them all the time. I'm pretty sure you've been with me climbing yeah. around Joshua Tree where I wear these insanely thin shoes. They're <laughs> basically rubber socks. But um, but yeah, my my relationship to shoes is fraught. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like wearing shoes at all. I'm against shoes. I'm coming out against it. That is an incredible <laughs> fact. I'm, it's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. <laughs> it's well, like- you'll be really excited with my last section with your against shoes movement. So. Okay, good. <laughs> so just hang on to that excitement. <laughs> Barefoot. Great. Okay, so I'm going to talk about something that's not that exciting, but it is scientifically really, really fascinating. And um, that is kind of the strangest thing about pregnancy being that it like happens at all. So, so much can go wrong with pregnancy that it's a wonder that babies are ever born at all, honestly. I mean, you know, miscarriages are incredibly sad, but um, of course, but they happen a lot more frequently than people think. And that's your body's way of just saying this isn't going right and it it needs to stop now for the most part. There are a lot of factors in all of that, and I'm not going to get into all of the mechanics of miscarriage. I'm going to get into a really rare but fascinating pregnancy abnormality right now and that is called i'm terrible at saying this word did you not just hear my whole section where i could not say those words this is just a hard one hard one to say and it's hydatidiform mole i've never been able to say that right hydatidiform mole okay and that is molar pregnancy have you ever heard of this like teeth no, um, oh. that's a totally separate thing. So there are like tumors <laughs> like that can grow that have teeth and that's a totally separate thing. That's like, not what that I'm talking sounds about. terrifying if you I get know. a pregnancy in your molars. <laughs> but people do get um, like yeah. uterine tumors and stuff like that, that. That have teeth, yeah. That have like teeth and hair growing in them. And that's a totally yes. separate thing. That's not this. So it's also for a some, terrifying. Yeah. For some biological clarity to understand what this means, a mole is a clump of growing tissue. Mm, that type and, of mole. Yeah. In a molar pregnancy, the fertilized egg does not contain an original maternal nucleus. 
the chorionic villi, which are basically finger-like blood vessel projections from the placenta to the uterine wall, swell and grow into masses that resemble a cluster of grapes. Molar pregnancies come in two varieties. A complete mole is when all of the genetic material in the products of conception belong to the father. Basically, the sperm fertilized an empty egg. A partial molar pregnancy, yes. So is this like the chicken eggs that we can eat versus the chicken eggs that have like a baby chicken in them? No. No. (laughs) The chicken eggs that we can eat are just periods. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, they're not fertilized at all. These are fertilized. (laughs) There's just nothing. There was no uh, maternal nucleus inside of it. A partial molar pregnancy occurs when the sperm deposits twice as much genetic material as requested and a fetus may develop, but it will have way too many chromosomes to survive. So too long didn't read complete means two sperm and empty egg, no fetus. Partial means two sperm, empty, mm-mm. partial means two sperm, egg, maybe fetus, right? Yes. Okay, <laughs> but a partial has 69 chromosomes, which is, nice. you don't know, way too many chromosomes. You don't want that many chromosomes. So a molar pregnancy is treated by surgical abortion. A baby will not come from a molar pregnancy. There may be a fetus, but like I said before, it's got too many chromosomes. That being said, in twin pregnancies, one twin could be a healthy whole fetus while the other is molar. And that's Mm. like hella complicated and scary. Most of these moles are benign, though in about 5% of cases, they can be actually cancerous. And in about 15% of cases, they are going to most likely result in something very serious if it continues to grow inside the body and they will become a massive issue. All the more reason to remove the offending products of conception quickly and without drama. Molar pregnancies are pretty rare, occurring in about one out of 1,000 pregnancies in the U.S. and one out of 100 pregnancies in many Asian countries. Why the discrepancy? Well, to be honest, we don't really know. There's a lot we don't know about molar pregnancies. So hopefully someday research can teach us a little bit more and we can prevent or at least avoid it for the most part. And it's just one of those things that happens. And like I said at the very beginning of the segment, pregnancy is wacky because so much can happen. It's a miracle babies are born at all. It really is. I think about it a lot. Okay. In Chinese religion, there is a Taoist deity called the barefoot master or the barefoot immortal me also he has appeared in several chinese operas in ancient literature and is in artwork throughout history paintings tapestries ceramics he's typically depicted as a kind god with a smile on his face no shoes and a bald head that half of it is tattooed (laughs) Me. <laughs> His original name is Liu Hai, and he is considered a staple in a lot of Chinese folk stories. 
like down back to like the traditional like oral stories he's been around. Wow. Some of the most common tales are the story of Emperor Renzong, who was an emperor of the Song Dynasty, and the folk tales claimed that he was the barefoot immortal. Mm. One um, story specifically focuses on how the barefoot immortal was ordered by the Jade Emperor to reincarnate into the human world. So he reincarnated as Emperor Renzong. And then um, another tale says that Emperor Renzong as a child would walk around barefoot a lot. And was known to have the ability to see into heaven. And so that's kind of where the rumors started that Emperor Renzong is the barefoot immortal. So that's just a fun... Most of his stories are very... um, He's sometimes portrayed as a little naive because he's just so kind and nice that Mm -hmm. he just trusts everything that's said to him. Um, But yeah, that is the... Barefoot Immortal from Chinese Folktales. I like that. I wonder how many people were just generally barefoot during the time that these folktales began. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Like, at what point did it become societally expected to always wear shoes in different societies? You know? Yeah. That's just a random thought that we should all have right now for no reason. <laughs> I'm like, well, I have some research later on that may provide answers on that for you. <laughs> oh, actually, perfect. That's really interesting. I like that. I would like to be addressed only as the barefoot immortal, dear listeners. Okay. Jennifer, being overdue is one of the worst, best things ever. On the one hand, your baby is cooked to perfection. <laughs> on the other hand, You are wearing a fat suit that you cannot take off. Everything hurts and you are withering away. It's hell. Jen, you have seen me literally over 10 months pregnant. Yes. (laughs) Because my last pregnancy, I was dramatically overdue. You've seen me (laughs) smuggle an award-winning watermelon around to the point where I was going to visit friends with my hospital bag just in case. There was a chance when we went to a movie that I was going to be taking her back with me when I went home to take her to the hospital. (laughs) Yes. Jen lived like within spitting distance of the hospital that I was required because of my insurance to give birth in. And I lived an hour away. (laughs) So anytime I went down to visit Jen, I had to just bring my hospital bag with me. So basically, when you are overdue, you get to a point where you start doing like really weird stuff to go into labor. Real quick. Yeah. I need to also make it be known. She played kickball up until the point she gave birth. I did. I was at one point actively running and sliding bases while I was 10 months pregnant. (laughs) She like did not like she was playing kickball and pitching strike after strike. Thank you. While super pregnant. <laughs> I, I think it was really disconcerting for people to see me just full sprint coming at them while I was so pregnant. <laughs> it was even so weird. And then, like, I give birth and then I started playing again, like, full force when she was yes. five weeks old. <laughs> I really we like, were all like, are you allowed to be back? No, I was not. <laughs> 
you she sat out one game and was like nope i can't do this i couldn't do it and i specifically didn't bring my cleats or wear a sports bra because i knew if i didn't have those two things that i would not want to run so i didn't bring them to that one game but that one game i sat out i was like visibly sweating i was holding on to the fence <laughs> screaming at you guys through the fence i was in hell and then the next weekend i showed up ba- I pack and play in the dugout and i was just like go to sleep i'm on the field <laughs> it was audi 5000 yes so they're back to trying to get yourself to go into labor play kickball that is actually recommended <laughs> though apparently did not work for me so there's recommended stuff like eating spicy food going for long walks primrose oil then there is salad dressing. One salad dressing in particular. At one Los Angeles Italian restaurant, which I believe is pronounced Coyote, but it's not spelled that way. Um, <laughs> Coyote Pizza Cafe. Classic Ed, yeah, LA. Classic LA business. <laughs> Chef Ed Ladeau or Ladeau, no one will ever know, has the odd distinction of making a salad dressing that seems to inexplicably cause overdue pregnant people to finally go into labor. It could very easily be correlation, not causation, because when you're overdue, you literally could go into labor at any moment. (laughs) But he is still serving up the delicious salad dressing to roughly 50 pregnant people per week, hoping to just get it all over with. I love that for him like what a distinction to have (laughs) i know so i think it was one particular woman was overdue and she went had the salad and then like immediately went into labor like on the way home and then she told a friend of hers who was also overdue later on and was like okay well i had this salad dressing and then i went into labor and then that person very quickly after went into labor and then it became a whole thing in la of like if you are overdue and you need to go into labor go to this pizza cafe and get this <laughs> salad or your salad dressing and you will go into labor and so like i said like roughly 50 per week are going there specifically to get this salad dressing to go into labor <laughs> which really shows you how much of like a desperate get it out situation you're yes. in when you're at the end of a pregnancy anybody who's ever been overdue you know that feeling um Olive was two weeks overdue and Violet was 15 days overdue, which is at at two weeks overdue, they start violently threatening to force you to have your baby. And I was like, ah. so, um, yeah, but Violet was over two weeks overdue. And it showed. I'm <laughs> <She laughs> like, and she's a big baby. <laughs> and she was born in the middle of August. It's almost her birthday. So she was born in the middle of August and I was living in the... Inland Empire, which is roughly the hole over the ozone layer meets the center of hell heat wise. So <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a bit of a situation. <laughs> but yeah, if you are overdue in the LA area and you really, really just want to try a nice, fun, delicious way to go into labor, give a Coyote Pizza Cafe a shot and go get that salad dressing. Tell them Kate sent you. They'll have no idea what it means, but we'd appreciate it if you told them. Yeah, just tell everybody I sent you everywhere. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> wine aisle at the grocery store with barefoot wine. Kate I can see you. somebody in, in Walmart carrying barefoot wine. Kate and Jen sent me. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, did you ever think it would be illegal or is illegal to go around barefoot or drive barefoot? 
Um, I happen to know that there are lots of places where it is illegal because it is a thing that I do. (laughs) Well, there's one group, and this is called the group Barefoot is Legal, (laughs) is here to tell you that it's not for the most part. Really? They have reached out to states, and um, no state in the U.S. has a law that bans bare feet in public. And there are no health department codes against it either, specifically. But that's in public, like not, that's not businesses. Right. So yeah, I'll, I'll just... reference that a little later. Okay, but right. okay. so there are some restrictions with driving based on the state. So in Arizona, you can drive without shoes on. But if you get into a car accident, you might face additional fines or tickets if you're barefoot. But then if you're driving with like ridiculous high heels on. It I know. would be... I just, okay, whatever. Alabama has a law that requires motorcyclists to wear shoes, which seems Thank God. kind of like logical, but. Yeah. I used to call my, um, my high top converse, my summer weight motorcycle boots. <laughs> <laughs> but the barefoot is legal group is not the only organiza- organization fighting for your right to be barefoot. You can go, uh, there is the Barefoot Alliance and the Society for Barefoot Living. So you can take your pick from the specific group you'd like to join and learn. Society for Barefoot Living seems like me. Yeah. They are here to fight for your right to party barefoot anywhere. School, work, grocery store. Great. I, so, um, so you said grocery store and this is an actual term that my family uses. And it's when you have like super dirty, like black bottoms of your feet, we call it grocery feet because it's what your feet look like after you walk around the grocery store. So now you do need to keep in mind that private businesses can require you to wear shoes. So as we kind of mentioned just a few minutes ago. Uh, public places there's no federal law banning you from going barefoot in a public place except for i think like a random strip of boardwalk in like new jersey it's on the barefoot is legal page (laughs) great but otherwise if it's a public place there is no federal law however private businesses there they can make the decision for no shirt no shoes no service which, uh, so as long as they are not discriminating against a specific group, they're allowed to deny you service, as we've seen with several lawsuits throughout of course, the country over the years. But this No Shirt, No Shoes, No Service started with hippies, because they didn't want to serve hippies, which feels like discriminating against a specific group, if I'm going to be honest. I have, I mean, I can understand the argument in a lot of situations for the safety of having no shoes on. Mm -hmm. And that's because like there are certain places where I would not want to be held liable if someone cut their foot or got their something dropped on their foot or something like that. If it happened inside a a gym. What's that? Like a gym. Yeah, like a gym. And I mean, like whenever, but then again, there's times at a gym where it is appropriate. You know, you go into a yoga studio at a gym and it's totally appropriate to take your shoes off. It's actually kind of weird if you have shoes on doing yoga. To be honest, if you wear shoes doing yoga, what's your deal? What's your problem? Yeah, honestly, that's That's, a good point. You're you're also like, like, there's a lot of biofeedback involved in yoga. You should take your mm -hmm. shoes off. It's better for Mm -hmm. you. But 
whenever it comes down to people just being like, well, I don't want to see anybody's feet. I, I have a – I don't have an aversion, like a full like phobia of feet, but I don't want to see anybody's feet, but I want my feet to touch the ground. So I yeah. will put up with someone's gnarly feet in order to have my own feet touch the ground. Let's also just normalize normalize everyone getting pedicures. Yeah, normalize pedicures. Um, normalize exfoliating your feet and wearing mm-hmm. lotion. Um, also, normalize letting me take my shoes off and walk around in the grass everywhere I go. Ugh, nothing the, like walking around in the grass. One of the greatest feelings in the world is after you go for a run and then you take off your shoes and walk through cold <gasps> yes. grass. After my half marathons that I run. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, my favorite thing, the like first thing I do is take my shoes off and I will walk back to wherever my car or hotel room is barefoot mm-hmm. because I just like I need that just like freedom in my in my feet. <laughs> one of my one of the, the greatest feelings I think I've ever had in my entire life is I ran a mud run in Temecula and after it was over and it was um it was a pretty long one. And after it was over, and if, if you don't know, Temecula is, like I said before, one of the hottest, dustiest places ever. And I was so filthy. And they had like hosed down a bunch of it because it's obviously a mud run and stuff. And then, um, but my feet were so covered in mud and like my shoes were soaked and everything like that. And I took off my shoes and there's like no grass in Temecula unless it's somebody's house. And I took off my shoes and I was like, walking back to my car and it was like a mile back to my car at the end of the parking lot and I was walking and it was like all these rocks and everything but I did not feel a thing because mm-hmm. I was so comfortable in that moment to be <laughs> able to take off because my shoes at that point weighed like a pound and a half each they were so full oh, of water and yeah. mud it was so ridiculous and then of course like the next day I was in the pool and my toenail came off love that for you yeah it was so funny like I was just like oh that's weird and then <laughs> came right off which if you are a heavy exerciser you have probably lost a toenail at some point i think we all have <laughs> yes. at some point lost a toenail but uh yeah so barefoot is legal the barefoot alliance the society for barefoot living are all groups that if you want more information on your right to go barefoot that they have it for you and they are happy to tell you where and when you can go barefoot with no problems yeah, if you uh, if you are going to a new place, check their website, see if you're about to be barefoot, just because. Mm-hmm. Take your shoes off, guys. Take a load off. <laughs> That's great. I like that. All right, last fact. Time for some fun. I'm going to give you a few pregnancy-related world records. I'm going to give you three world Ooh. records. So the heaviest baby to survive infancy ever recorded was Olive Magnolia. No, it was... <laughs> A baby born in Italy in 1955, weighing in at 22 pounds, 8 ounces. Was that naturally birthed or was it a cesarean? No, C-section. That was a C-section. Okay. I was uh, like, that poor woman. You know. I mean, either way, that poor woman, but. Yeah. My middle child, Olive, is she was extremely large when she was born and she was not even half of the size of that baby but i can only imagine oh my god like she was so big that i was actually looking at her medical records recently to take them to her doctor and i'd like printed them all off and there was like a whole thing after she was born where they kept testing her to see if she had macrosomic related problems like um macrosomia from gestational diabetes which i did not have or anything like that 
because she was so big and they kept checking her sugar all the time and stuff. And she was totally healthy. Thank goodness. She was an incredibly healthy baby still to this day, like the healthiest child. She's very lucky like that. But she was so incredibly big and her face was so big. Her eyes didn't even open all the way. <laughs> and they were just like, what's up with this giant baby? But um, I can't imagine a 22 pound baby, 22 pounds, eight ounces, so 22 and a half pounds. And there, I will say though, when babies of that size, which is why people thought that maybe there was something wrong with my child, babies of that size are typically not healthy. The mother or the the person who gave birth to them typically uh they typically had something like gestational diabetes and then the baby's macrosomic and that's why they are so big so it's amusing but to have a toddler sized baby but they are oftentimes but not always not a healthy baby that it's also crazy to me that that is still the record, and it was in 1950s, like the 1950s. Yeah, 1955. But in 2019, an American woman gave birth to a 15-pound, 5-ounce baby in New York. And then um, I can't remember the year, but there was somebody in Arizona, actually, that uh, made the news by having a 14-and-a-half-pound baby. So good job. Not as cool as the person who had twins on – February 2nd, 2022. So it's two Tuesday. <laughs> and, and they were in, they put them in room at like 22 and they gave birth at, uh, what, gosh, what time was it? Oh, it was, I think it was 10. So it was, it ended up, ended up being like two, two, 22, <laughs> like oh in military God. time. It was the, all the twos. That's interesting. That I so wonder cool. how much, <laughs> how much like heavy breathing, she like trying to make that in. happen. <laughs> like we have to do it. We've gotten this far. We've come so close. <laughs> you would have to. They'd be like, like, just do it, sweetie. Just do it. No, <laughs> no, I'm not ready. I'm like you've got four days. I can do this. <laughs> All right. So also in 2019, an unnamed 74-year-old woman in India gave birth to twins conceived through IVF. I don't know why I wrote IVF like that. Um, making <laughs> her like, the oldest woman. IV? To, IV came just through an IV tube. <laughs> making her the <laughs> oldest woman to ever give birth. The baby was born via C. The, both the babies were born via C-section as well. Um, there is an odd thing I've noticed while I was looking up that fact, and that is that there is a very large amount of geriatric postmenopausal IVF births happening in India. Like the last like several oldest people to give birth have been from India. Interesting. And I don't it's it is an odd thing. I didn't find any like other info about it where people like that's weird i didn't find it i just noticed that odd thing is that in india because i don't there were some ethics questions about a person who is of advanced age that advanced of age giving birth Mm -hmm. and that they are so elderly and like their ability to care for a child and obviously this that you know I am in no position whatsoever and I wouldn't dream of passing judgment on somebody's ability to care for a child. 
But there were ethics questions about that. But I didn't find any info on why that's happening so frequently in India. And I that's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't, I just, it was just an odd thing I noticed. And I was just like, yeah. that's so strange that that's, you know, but um, there was a, uh, I think the last um, or the oldest person to, I don't have this one written down just off the top, but the oldest person to give birth, not through IVF, to have a um, natural non-postmenopausal pregnancy was a person in their late fifties. So they just hadn't gone through menopause yet and they got pregnant the old fashioned way. So that's what a surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that person had like 25 year old children as well, like children in their mid twenties as well. So, uh, no, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) But there are also people that will like a mother that will have a child who is, has fertility problems or has like an anatomical reason why they can't give birth. And that mother will carry a child because you know, if you don't know, now you do, but you your uterus continues to be able to hold a pregnancy even after you have gone through menopause. Menopause mm-hmm. is just about the eggs, but um, but if you still have the uterus, you still got the oven, you can still cook the baby. So even people who have gone through menopause, they can still get pregnant. You just need the uterus. You don't need the ovaries. All right. Last but not least, and this one is an oldie but a goodie, and I find it endlessly fascinating. Um, the first man to ever give birth was Thomas Beatty in 2007. Thomas is a trans man who kept his reproductive organs in order to start a family because his wife had previously had a hysterectomy. Thomas has given birth to three children and has a fourth with his second wife who gave birth to the fourth child. So that's fascinating. That is. I can't believe that was so, like, I I know it sounds crazy saying that was so far back, but, like, mm-hmm. 2007 seems so early for something, like, that progressive. You know, and so that that is the first – that's saying that's the first man to give birth, and that's, like, the first trans man to give birth. And I will say this. That is a very notable person, but I do not believe – that that is the first trans man to yeah. ever have a child. And there's lots of there's lots of trans men who transitioned after having children. Tons, mm-hmm. tons and tons of people have transitioned after having children. And there's also probably a lot of trans men who just didn't make the news and didn't make a big stink about it because Thomas Beatty endured a massive amount of backlash that was not deserved whatsoever mm-hmm. for being a man and being trans and having a child. There's, I mean, there is tons of people and people to this day who believed that a trans person just because they are trans are not qualified to have a child. And there was like people discussing the ethics of it. And I don't understand at all, like make it no. make sense to me. How is that yeah. person not qualified to have a child? I mean, how are they any differently qualified than literally anybody else on earth? And, yeah. But that's, you know, that gets into people's deep-seated insecurities mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But that Thomas Beatty is known to be the first man to give birth. But in, but also very notably, um, Thomas is also a trans activist, of course, lots and lots to say about it. And that's that was part of it is kind of bringing to light like – trans people and gender and you know reproductive organs and all of that stuff like all of that can move fluidly through society but i will mm-hmm. say i i do fully believe that there was probably a, several 
trans men who gave birth quietly and started mm-hmm. families quietly and did not make a big old stink about it. And you want to know how many of those have impacted my life? How? Zero. Because it's their their business. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and let, let them do their thing. <laughs> yeah. So obviously on this podcast, we are in <laughs> no way trans exclusionary. We, um, in we support everyone's right to body autonomy, mm-hmm. whether you are a 74-year-old Indian woman, whether you are a man giving birth to your beautiful family, no matter who you are, uh, reproductive rights are very important. And mm-hmm. it's not my right to judge your right with your reproductive organs. And I support Thomas Beatty in being a wonderful father that I assume that he is. So, but yeah, he gave birth to three children. So good job, Thomas. Good job, Thomas. Way to be a good dad. Shall we citation? We shall. This. Let's do it. Okay. For our little history on barefoot wine, I got it from a Forbes interview with the Harbies and also the website Vine Pair, which has a lot more little facts about them. Uh, barefootbookseller.com if you want that job. <laughs> and if you get it, I want to know. I want credit for getting you that job. You owe us half of your salary before <laughs> you were murdered in the Maldives. Yes. <laughs> Up front because yeah, exactly. you can't pay me if you're murdered. <laughs> you can put it in your will, I guess. Uh, the article on running barefoot was... From Barefoot Hunter Gathering to Shod Pavement Pounding, Shod means wearing shoes. Where to from here, a narrative review, and it was part of the BMJ Open Sport and Exercise Medicine 2020 journal. And I emailed it to you, Kate. Thank you. (laughs) That's what I'm reading before bed tonight. (laughs) Barefoot Immortal from the Chinese folklore and religion was from Wikipedia. And Barefoot Legal is Legal. They all, Barefoot is Legal, Barefoot Alliance, and Society for Barefoot Living all have their own websites that you can get all that information from. Lovely. All right. Your Pregante Chad came from history.com. The terms, which there will be a test later, that came from medlineplus.gov. Molar pregnancy came from Our Lady of Wikipedia. Labor dressing came from Atlas Obscura, and the records I gave you at the end came from NBC News and Baby Med. So this was a this was a really fun episode. I had a good time with this. I'll let my therapist know that it went well. <laughs> <laughs> if you happen to be a pregnant Chad or just like a Chad in general, I mean, let us know what's going on with that. You doing okay? You doing okay, bro? Or if you typically run barefoot and feel very strongly about it, or if you are pro shoe and hate being barefoot and feel strongly about it, I want to hear your arguments. Give me your arguments. I want to know more info about it. You can hit us up at weirdflexpodcast at gmail.com, or you can get us on the Instagram at weirdflexpodcast on Instagram. And that's also where we post pictures and interesting info and let you know when our episodes come out, which means whenever I edit them and release them, because there's no real knowing when that's going to happen, to be honest with you. (laughs) 
It's a surprise for us all. <laughs> yeah. Like I always say, if you're not going to pay me to do it, I'm doing it on my own timeline. <laughs> we do this out of the passion in our hearts. But this was really fun. Yeah. Do you know what we're again, doing next time or not? Nah? Um, well, I think we said room and board because I was writing that in my notes. And then I texted you and said room and board. <laughs> nice. But okay. Yes, we are doing that. What's great is friend of the pod, Mariah, sent me a list of like 20 topics. I love when she does that. (laughs) So, and she is actually to thank for this topic. And I told her I was going to call her out on it on the podcast because she'd never heard of the phrase barefoot and pregnant. Well, Mariah and I come from vastly different societies. (laughs) (laughs) So we could not come from more different backgrounds. (laughs) (laughs) Which it was in reference to one of my favorite reality shows, The Bachelorette. (laughs) Oh, Kate loves when it's Bachelor Bachelorette season because I just tell her all the stuff going on. Yeah, I have never watched her. (laughs) I've never watched a single moment of Bachelor or Bachelorette at all. Not even like a clip on the internet (laughs) at all. But I know a lot of what's going on because Jen will just save me the weirdest (laughs) parts and let me know what's going on. So I don't need to know anything about. Actually, no, I did watch a clip. You sent me that horrid clip of that couple kissing. What was that from? Was that from Bachelorette? That was, yeah, that was this season. Okay. <laughs> it, was it was disgusting. And it, it actually was... put me in a bad mood. <laughs> it was so uncomfortable. <laughs> it was disgusting and I hated it. And it really reiterated that the only Bachelor content I want ever is just Jen telling me Oh my gosh. This was a good one. I really enjoyed yep. this one. But thanks for listening, guys. And we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.